you for downloading our podcast or watching our sermon series. It is very important that we know the God we worship. It is also imperative that we discern how God defines himself in his word. If we do not take the time to know our God, we will never know ourselves. We might think we can never know God. When we really think about God, we can see some apparent tension. How can we say, for instance, that God is simple on the one hand, but also incomprehensible? How can we say that God is separate, but also personal at the same time? These are just some of the instances. Please join us as we seek to answer these questions and many more, and remind ourselves that we are the creatures, and He is the great Creator King. As I mentioned, we conclude our study on the attributes of God and what it means for, uh, or how God defines himself in, the word of, in his word. And as the confession summarizes the word of God so we understand who God is. Remember, we've divided the attributes of God into two categories. There's the communicable and the incommunicable. Uh, and these simply mean communicable, those attributes God gives to or shares with us, or we share with God is a more proper way of saying it. And the incommunicable are those attributes that are unique and distinct uh, to God. So as we continue and we finish up and we cover basically the last communicable attribute, and this is goodness. Uh, there is a sense in which we are good, not good in the same way that God is good. But ultimately, we look at this passage here in Matthew 19 with an individual asking to, for Christ to define definitively what is good. And so it's rather significant to see this interaction as you see how we as human beings uh, can try and define good and see goodness as something we can simply attain with our own effort apart from Christ and how Christ is laying out what true goodness is. And so what does it mean then if we say that the Lord is, is truly the fullness of good, and we say that we'll never attain the fullness of good? How can we enter into his rest? How do we um, draw this connection, especially when Christ lays out this impossibility that sounds as if we have to take an absolute oath of poverty if we want to be a Christian. So what does Christ mean? So what is good and are we good is a simple way of dividing this. So first when we ask what is good, this is where we go and we turn back to what do we know about God? Who is God? What is he revealed in his word? Well, as we've seen in the confession and just reviewing again, uh, going through these attributes, there is one God. So it's important to understand that as a confession starts with this, there is only one God we are called to please, called to serve. We may come up with our own different gods. They are invalid gods. There is only one true God. God is simple and spiritual. So again, we see that simple is incommunicable because God is not made up of complex parts. Uh, obviously, we can't say that about ourselves. We need to sleep, we eat, uh, we can lose limbs and appendages, so that tells us that, that we are not simple. We're made up of complex uh, things, we're an organism that's made and needs to be nourished, etc. God doesn't need any of those things. But we said that we are spiritual uh, because we have a soul, so we share this attribute with God. 
God is eternal. Eternal in the sense that God has no beginning and he has no end. We're everlasting, and so we, we sort of share this where we have a point in time and then we continue on into uh, eternity, but we have a beginning and we have a progression. And even as we've seen with the souls under the altar, there's a consciousness of a passage of, um, or a progression, I guess you could say, maybe not a passage of time as they're in heaven, but they do understand a progression and a longing to put on the fullness of glory in their glorified body. We say that God is incomprehensible. Uh, so we cannot know God exhaustively. Now this is not uh, to say that we do not know God or can't know anything about God. We can certainly know God, but we cannot know him exhaustively is what the confession taught us or what we learned. God is invisible. So God is one that we do not see. Uh, we ourselves obviously share in this attribute since we have an invisible soul. Uh, so we share in this, but not you know, as exhaustively as we would say with God. God is immutable. That means God does not change. Uh, God is consistent. God is infinite. He's everywhere present as once. Obviously, we don't share in that. God is almighty. He's perfectly powerful. Uh, we saw the important point that God is perfectly wise. So we share wisdom with God. Um, but wisdom, you know, we talk about the school of hard knocks or making mistakes. You pay tuition to the school of hard knocks, right? When you make a poor decision or a poor financial decision, that's tuition to the school of hard knocks. Uh, you're learning something. You gain wisdom through that, hopefully. Uh, so our, our wisdom, again, we, we learn this, uh, we have knowledge, and then we figure out how to apply that knowledge. Last time we saw that God is just. So it's important to understand you have just before good. So God is perfectly just. Uh, God is one who has every right to demand absolute justice from us, to execute his justice. We are all condemned naturally in Adam, and it's in Christ that we are those who have that sentence overturned. It is Christ who paid that redemption, as we saw last time from Romans 3. Now when we look at goodness... This is an important point because obviously we share with the goodness, right? When God created the world, he declared it good. We are part of that creation. Therefore, at one time, we were called good. Uh, we're called to be good. And so when we think about this, we say, well, then what does it mean that God is good? Well, obviously, when we think about this, it means that everything God, everything God does is good. Absolutely perfect. Now, this doesn't mean everything that happens we fully understand or we fully love everything that, that manifests itself, but we always have to go back to the reality that what God does is good. And, and we have to rest in that reality, that for whatever reason, God saw what he did was good. Now, we look at goodness in terms of how we do this with Reformed theology, and, and what do we, we put under goodness? Well, we think about the loving kindness or steadfast mercy of God, right? So this is God showing he's consistently merciful. Uh, God's not a cruel God, so he's just and he's merciful. Uh, we think of the bumper stickers, you know, God is love or whatever. You know, coming from the 19th century uh, liberalism of trying to redefine God as just being love. Well... Certainly, God is love, but God is also just. God is merciful, God is also just, right? 
So we, we have to keep these attributes uh, in balance, seeing them as perfectly uh, exercised in who God is. God is also one who has compassion, right? And we talk about goodness, slow to anger, compassionate, puts up with us. Uh, this humbles us because we recognize that when we come before the Lord, uh, basically any time we come before him, he's being compassionate. Uh, he doesn't need to listen to us, but by his choice, by his uh, gracious, long-suffering mercy, he listens to us. God is long-suffering. So we can think, surely he's long-suffering with the world and with sinners and with those outside, but truly... You know, you read Psalm 51 of David talking about, you know, his sin and how he sinned against God and how God's long-suffering even with us, uh, even as he puts up with us. Part of this goodness is also God's grace. Now, when we talk about grace and we look at Matthew 19, this is an important concept to have in the back of our mind. Sometimes we define grace as unmerited favor. I prefer the definition of demerited favor. And let me draw a contrast. I usually do a speeding ticket, but my wife's annoyed at that analogy. Uh, but going on with the unmerited versus demerited favor. I'm going to use a ticket, but it's different. So if you think about unmerited favor, unmerited favor would be basically, you know that I like a particular event. You say, hey, I got some tickets. You give me the tickets. You don't owe me a favor. I've done nothing fundamentally to deserve them. It's just grace, right? You just say, here, here you go. Enjoy the, the show or enjoy the event. Here you go. Here's tickets to it. Take your family. Enjoy the night, right? So I haven't really done anything to deserve it. You don't owe me a favor. You just decide out of the kindness of your heart just to give me those tickets. That's unmerited. I, I haven't earned it, but I haven't really done anything to, to deny it. Now, demerited favor would be basically, I've keyed your car, I slash your tires, I smash your windshield, I burn down your house, I destroy your place of business, uh, I do everything in my power to destroy you, and then you turn to me and say, oh, by the way, here's a ticket to that particular event, take your family on me. And so when you look at what God has done, we've done more of the demerited favor, right? I mean, it's not that we're kind of just on the fence here and sort of morally neutral and God's kind of nice to us. I mean, we trampled this garden. Uh, we, we said, we don't want you. We, we said, go away. Uh, we're going to destroy everything you've made that is good and we're going to undermine it. And God still comes to us, gives us Christ and redeems us. And so that's why I think it's important to understand demerited favor if we really want to understand the goodness and mercy of God in the fullness of what this means. Now, we might say, why is this so important when we talk about the goodness of God? Well, this is where I thought it was important to go and, and to look at Matthew 19. Now, when Matthew lays out this particular individual, we don't really know. So in verse 16, it tells us there's a man that comes of Christ. The young man obviously seems pretty confident and we find in verse uh, 22 that he's pretty well off but in the initial introduction of this man we just know that it's just a man so it's just an individual we don't know if he's prestigious we don't know if he's a ruler we, we don't know anything about him and as this man 
uh, comes to Christ, and as he interacts with Christ, he wants to know, and he has this particular question. Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now, this obviously is a loaded question, because in his mind, there's something he can do to have eternal life. In other words, it's one act, one work. And as he does this work, he's going to be dialed in and know that he has merited and earned eternal life. So remember the unmerited versus demerited grace. In his mind, it's just basically unmerited favor. He can go and and he can figure out how to uh, please God in his own works. Well, as Christ goes and he asks this question, he asks a very important question. And he says, why do you ask me what is good? A lot of times we, we can skip over this, but it's a very profound question, isn't it? Because the fundamental assumption is we think as humans, we can determine what's good and what's bad. Now, think about that for a moment. Once we say we're in a position of determining what is good or, or bad, we are placing ourselves in the place of God. We are determining good and bad. It's, it's our decision. It's our declaration. So Christ is turning to him and saying, well, what kind of individual do you think I am that I am in a position to rise above the Lord and determine and declare what is good and bad? What Christ is getting at is truly, if he's a competent rabbi, he can discern what's good and bad. He can discern right and wrong, Right? Now, as he discerns it, he can make a statement about it, but he can't declare it. He can't say, this is good, this is bad, here I decree in the place of God. And so what Christ is saying to this young man is he's saying, who do you think I am? Are are you saying I'm God? Is that your profession that you're saying, that what I declare is good is truly good, like God at the creation account? Or, Or are you saying that I'm someone who can discern What's good? What, what are you asking? What, what do you want to know? And so this is a question that's sort of putting it back on this individual. Is man in a place to determine or declare what is good and, and, or right and wrong? Or is man in a place where man discerns and submits to the Lord in terms of what the Lord has already declared as right or wrong? So that's why Christ is asking, me, asking him this question. What's good? Why do you want me to make this declaration? Who who am I to make such a declaration? What are you saying about me? Well, Christ then lays out two options. And he goes and he responds to this person, there's only one who is good, right? So this is underscoring what I'm saying. So here we go, there's one that is good. And then he talks about the commandments. So this one who is good is something that's sort of unlocking the key for what this young man should be wrestling with. Because this reference to the one being good is probably a veiled echo back to the Shema for Israel in Deuteronomy 6 verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. Now the meaning of that is that there is one God and there is one God who is first in priority. So what he's saying is that if you really want to learn what's good, It's not an issue of declaring good, it's an issue of pursuing this God. As you know this God and you know the terms of this God, you're going to discover what he has already declared as good or bad. 
It's his declaration. It's our call to be in line with that declaration. So Christ isn't denying there's a right or wrong or a good and bad. Christ is just saying who declares it. Do we as humans or has God already declared it? That's what he's laying out to this young man. Now you would think that this young man being an Israelite would think back to the Shema and think, yes, I am supposed to think of the Lord being one first in priority. What am I thinking? Am I one who truly lives this out and lives my life with the Lord always being first in priority? Now this is important when you get to why this man leaves in a discouraged way. And so as Christ lays this out, he wants this person to understand who this person is, where this person needs to find his priority. Because once we affirm that God is good, and the essence of good, and the fullness of good, this is humbling. Because the reality is, if we are honest, and truly, truly honest, every moment of our life, we are not focused on the Lord as we ought to be. And hopefully it's not a controversial statement. And so once you affirm and concede that there is one who is good, one who is in first priority, you recognize you've got a problem because you have not met this standard. You have not measured up and you have failed. And truly, God is good and we are not good. Apart from his mercy, apart from his grace, apart from his redeeming work, we are not even going to begin to be good and conform to him. And so when Christ is laying this out, the, the proper answer he should have is, yes, this is true. So how do I pursue God? In other words, now Christ is getting at the, the essence of the question, why do you ask me what is good? In other words, are you affirming I'm the Messiah? Are you affirming that I'm God? If you're affirming I'm God, let me tell you about my mission. Let me tell you what I have done and what I am doing to save my people from their sins. And so if this man really wants to understand goodness, and when Christ goes on to the commandments that we'll cover in a moment, this man right here should come to the feet of Christ and say, yes, I recognize you are more than merely a rabbi or a teacher, but you are the Messiah. You are the God-man. And so right here we find that only God is truly, fully uh, the fullness of what good means as a true standard. And so then we move to this question then, are we good? And this is where it's important when Christ asks this question, why do you ask me what is good? Because right here we're recognizing the only way that we encounter God is by his mercy. It is only in Jesus Christ who has come to save his people from their sins, living up to his name as a God-man who submits to his Father's will. And so again, even Christ, as we heard this morning uh, with the temptation narrative, Christ himself doesn't reinterpret what's good, even though he is a God-man. We find that Christ himself will submit to the Father's will. So we go back to that question that this man sees as a real pressing question. What good deed must I do to have eternal life? So right here, this man is assuming that this good deed that Christ is going to assign him, he can just acquire. He can do it. He, he can merit it. He's, 
He's one who is so put together that he's in a place that he's just going to follow the Lord and be tuned into the purpose of God 100%. And so he's not really understanding the fullness of this question. And so when Christ now says, what do you mean uh, when you ask me about this good deed? And, and this man should be asking, well, what do you mean by the one who is only good? Well, as the man could ask that question, you know, what, what are the implications of God being good? What does that fundamentally mean? Which is what the man should be asking. You know, what, what does that mean, God's good? How, how, how do I really live out the Shema? I think I understand what it means to heed the Lord, but, but what am I not doing, right? This is a discussion Christ is inviting him to go into and what he could do. But we have this man responding in another way, when he should contemplate, you know, there's an old southern saying of never miss a good opportunity to keep your mouth shut. This is one of those opportunities where maybe the man should keep his mouth shut and ask Christ, well, what, what do you mean? What, what are you talking about? But he doesn't. And so Christ, as he says, there's only one that is good. And he says, if you want to enter life, keep or guard, maintain continually uh, observe the commandments as a way of bringing this into the English in its fullness. In other words, continually observe the commandments of God without wavering even for a moment. And as you continually observe these commandments, you'll be in the kingdom based upon your own merits. Now, only Jesus Christ is the one who has done this perfectly. So you would think that again, this man would say, okay, well, there's a Shema, the Lord is one, first in priority, God alone is good. <sighs> All the commandments, huh? Right? I mean, that's, that's where you'd kind of go. But that's not what the man does. <laughs> he says, which ones? Now, Christ goes and he lists some of the Ten Commandments. Now, this isn't uh, intention to have all of the commandments, and in other words, as he lists these commandments, it isn't that these are higher commandments or greater commandments. It's a summary of the law of God. And so Christ is inviting this man to really think about what Moses has said. So when we read the Decalogue on Sunday morning, I want to emphasize these are not merely ten to-dos, right? If we look at the Decalogue in a very superficial way, meaning the ten commandments, we can probably check off most of them in a superficial way, right? An outward action, ah, I go to church, yeah, by and large, I honor my parents, you know. But when you start drilling down and start thinking about the deeper implications of what the commandments are, are requiring of us, what it means to truly love the Lord with all of our heart as a top priority, you start recognizing that, you know, I'm really not nailing this as well as I ought to be. And there's a certain humility where you say, no, I, I do need to grow. And I do need to conform to God by his grace. And I really do need Jesus Christ to be my savior. And, and he's got to continue to work on me. Well, notice what this man says. <laughs> Rabbi, you know, what, what good work should I do? Okay, so there's one that's good. I, I already know that. That's quick. That's easy. Oh, by the way, yeah, I've kept all these. Now, when he uses this language of kept, he's not speaking of just individual commands, right? This, this man, at least by implication, is claiming to track Christ. So even if he sees Christ just laying out a few examples of the law of God, 
if he really digs deeply, he would understand that, you know, he, he really hasn't done this. He hasn't loved his neighbor. He hasn't done this to the perfection that God truly lays out. He hasn't loved the Lord as much as he ought to. He hasn't honored his parents, etc. He has not done these things like he should. Now, Christ is actually laying out the simpler commands dealing with man to man. He's not even dealing with the full priority of man to God. That's by implication of the one who is good. But this man says, all these I have kept. And so this is a, a literal statement that he is the one who has kept these things. I mean, re really think about that. He's saying he's, he's really guarded this. He's done this as he should. Really no place to grow here. Um, hasn't failed, doesn't intend to fail. I mean, this is pretty much the essence of arrogance where he's basically saying, yeah, there's one that's good, but if this is a requirement, I've really nailed it. And this is something that does invite us to think about our Christian life a bit because the reality is when we lay out our standard of the law, we nail it every time, right? Because it's our understanding of the law. It's our determining what's good. This is where Christ is trying to reprioritize a guy, saying, you got to think about this. God declares what's good, and we're called to meet that standard. It's not, I declare what's good, and I meet the standard by my own works and by my own deeds, and I nail it. That's what this guy's doing. He's nailed it. He's done it perfectly. And so he looks at Christ, he's basically saying, well, give, give me something that's a challenge, right? So now Jesus lays out a little bit more of the significance of, of the requirements of God in, in verse 21, where he says, if you want to be perfect, now the, the force of perfect is really being complete, being whole. Uh, so it's not just attaining a state of, of greater obedience. This is attaining the fullness of what man was supposed to be. And so Christ is sort of here trolling the individual and saying, all right, you think you're nailing this? You think you're doing well? I sort of threw out the softball reference to Deuteronomy 6.4. You didn't really think about the implications of that. Talked about how you interact with your fellow man. You say you've nailed that every time. So just like, okay, if you really want to be the fullness and the perfection of what humanity is, and you're really asking for something to do, let, let me give you something to do. And he says, why don't you sell all your possessions and give to the poor? Now, when we hear this, we say, well, is it sinful then to have a house? Is it sinful to have a bed? Is it sinful to have a car? You know, what, what does Christ mean by this? When, when you hear this standard, you, you wonder, well, that's a pretty rigorous standard. Now, if we take this out of context, we can go right to the social gospel and we can say that we're just going to go and we're going to have minimal possessions. And as we have minimal possessions, uh, we're going to go out and we're really going to honor the Lord. Now, if the Spirit places that upon someone, so be it. But we need to, to put this into context before we start binding consciences and saying it's sinful to have a house, it's sinful to use heat, or it's sinful whatever, right? What is Christ getting at? Well, what Christ is getting at is he's really pushing this man on the priority. 
And the man has sort of pushed back a little bit against Christ, but not pushed back into places where he should. He should be asking, so what are the implications then of Deuteronomy 6.4? What does that mean, the Lord's one? What, what does that mean that there is one that is good? That, that's the question he should be firing back at Christ, like right there at the beginning. When Christ lays out the law of God, he, he should say, well, why are these so hard? They seem simple to me, but maybe I'm not really understanding the full implications of the law of God. He's not firing back there. And so here Christ is reading the situation. This man needs a serious dose of humility. And so Christ is saying, okay, you really think you're nailing it? You think you really love your fellow man? How about you sell everything and take care of your fellow man? Well, now the man leaves and he's discouraged because he thought he was nailing it. And now Christ is saying, how have you really cared for your fellow man? Let's, let's really put something out here that, that's pretty, pretty painful to do. And let's see if you're willing to do it. Well, he's not willing to do it. Now we say, okay, so then there's, there's a, the reality. If, if this is what we're called to do, we live in a house, we drove our cars here, uh, we're in a heated building, we're using lights. I mean, are these things sinful? Well, this is where you got to put it in the context of what Jesus is saying. See, it's not just Jesus saying that this is a requirement for everyone, but he's really telling us what the full standard is. And it's a priority in terms of our hearts as to where we know what the priorities are. When we understand there is one who is good, and we know that he's the one who determines what's good, I don't determine what's good, I discern it, and I desire to bring my life in line with it. So what is Christ fundamentally saying? Well, he doesn't just tell him to go and sell everything, but he tells him something else. Where is his priority? He started with the same priority for his people throughout all the ages, didn't he? The Lord is one. Follow that one God. Now Christ is saying, how do you live your life in a deliberate manner? Well, goodness is having an orientation of the, the concept that we're heavenly people. So what we do in this age, we understand we're doing it for the glory of heaven. What has Christ said in Matthew 6, verse 33? And it's important because this is what's working out in Matthew's gospel secretly. Or, you know, behind the scenes. I guess it's not necessarily secret. Christ said it in a public context. But that's sort of the, the subtlety of Christ's interaction is a better way of saying that. In Matthew 6, verse 33, he said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. And so when Christ tells this man, sell everything, he's saying, why don't you make it a priority to really care for those in your community? But don't just do it so you puff yourself up and look benevolent and significant. You want to do it because you want to glorify your God. And then Christ invites him, follow me. So when Christ says, why do you say I'm good? Right? That, that's the invitation. Are you saying I'm the Messiah? Are you saying I'm the God-man? Well, if you, if you believe that, well, then follow me. Be my disciple. Come and, and follow after my goodness and seek to pursue the kingdom of God as you walk after Christ. And so it's that significant invitation and call. Follow me. So when we say, well, then, 
How do we know we're good? How do we know if we're conforming to the Lord? Well, it's asking the questions I brought up. Are we asking, who is God? What does it mean that he is one first in priority? What does it look like in terms of my life to make God one in priority, first and top, and understanding who he is? Am I the one who's determining what's good in my own life, or am I discerning what God has revealed as good? Am I seeing Christ as a God-man, as a sole redeemer, and desiring to follow him as his disciple? What Christ is calling for us to do, and again, I, I, this language makes me nervous, but I don't know how else to put it. I mean, really, it's a call to be faithful to Christ, and I'm not saying we're justified by our covenant faithfulness. But our fundamental call, if we say, what's the Christian life? Our Christian life is to be faithful to Christ. To discern what it means to live for our Savior as the Spirit's at work in us, right? We've talked about Psalm 139, search me, O Lord, right? That prayer, search my heart, convict me, show me where I'm wrong, so that what is not good within me conforms to your standard of goodness. And that's where we have the tragedy, and we do find... Uh, some argue in other gospel accounts that this man does go on and become a disciple of Christ, truly understanding this interaction. But at least right here, we have this individual that he leaves. And he's sorrowful because he's so attached to the things of this world that he's not seeing the priority of heaven. So again, that's an important thing to put in the context of this. So in conclusion then, when we ask this question of God, being good. And we think about our call to goodness and to be good. What does that fundamentally mean? How do we know if we're going to be good when truly this is an impossible task if we're going to do this in our own strength? Well, this is a reminder we're not doing this in our own strength. And that's a fundamental problem in this individual coming to Christ. What can I do, right? What are you doing? What does it mean for me to follow you, right? He's not asking those questions. He's stuck on, I got this dialed. I got this figured out. What must I do? And Christ is pointing out to him, we cannot do enough to truly attain the full standard of good. We can't. This is why we follow after Christ. And this is why we're not determining what is good in our own declaration, in our own statements, our own um, uh, declarative uh, ways of saying what is good and what is bad. We discern what is good. We learn what is good. And we conform to what God has declared as good. And we seek to bring our lives into conformity as we sojourn under the sun in the power of the Spirit. And so it's a reminder then, and when we talk about the goodness of God, and God alone being good, it's by his mercy, by his grace, uh, by the power of his spirit, that he continues to conform us and bring us in line uh, with what is good. And it's a reminder then in terms of our consciousness, we seek first his kingdom, we seek first him, and we desire to live our lives in this age in light of the glorious status we have as this kingdom people sojourning through this age as his redeemed. 
Let us then follow as faithful disciples of Christ. Understanding this is a process where we continue to grow, we continue to conform, and let us continue then to seek to honor our Lord, seeking first his kingdom, knowing that our Lord is one, first in priority, the only God we are called to serve, because he is the only true God who has redeemed and acted in Christ and applied Christ's work in the power of his spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to our sermon. We hope and pray that our sermons encourage you as you sojourn on your Christian walk. If you have any questions about our church, please contact our pastor through our webpage, urcbelgrade.com. That is urcbelgrade.com. We also have many sermon series archived and available for download on our website, urcbelgrade.com. Most of all, we would love to see you join us in our Christian sojourn by being part of our church. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you.